The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, 40-odd years ago, I left Abilene. Since then, I have seen demonstrated in our own land and in far corners of the earth, on battlefields and around council tables, in schoolhouse and factory and farming community, the indomitable spirit of Americans. From this rostrum, looking back on the American record through these years, I gained personal inspiration and renewed devotion to America. There is nothing before us that can affright or defeat a people who in one man's lifetime have accomplished so much. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe we can have peace with honor, reasonable security with national solvency. I believe in the future of the United States of America. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, hang out the banner and beat the drum. We'll take Ike to Washington. Now is the time for all good Americans to come to the aid of their country. Hi, this is New. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. This year, we mark the 75th anniversary of victory in Europe and the 75th commemoration of the end of World War II. Eisenhower, or Ike as he was known, was a West Point graduate, a five-star general in the Army, served as Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in Europe in World War II, and became the 34th President of the United States. He is an extraordinary person and one well worth studying because so much of what he did and what he understood can be applied to our own lives and our own situation. 
This episode is the last in our three-part The Immortals Dwight David Eisenhower series. And I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Susan Eisenhower, Eisenhower's granddaughter and author of How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions. In part three of The Immortals, Dwight David Eisenhower, we take you through Eisenhower's presidential campaign and his presidency and look at how he made decisions. We're very fortunate at a time when the Eisenhower Memorial is being dedicated on the mall to have as a special guest, Susan Eisenhower, his granddaughter, who recently wrote a book, How Ike Led the Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions, looking at her grandfather's leadership style and what we can learn from him that we can apply in our lives. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, Mr. Speaker, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. And I'm very curious, as I'm such a huge admirer of your grandfather. What was life like growing up with Dwight Eisenhower as both a grandfather and president? Looking back, of course, there's nothing normal about growing up in an environment like that. He was, in retrospect, a phenomenally disciplined person. He did not bring his worries home in the evening, and I really admire that. It's a challenging thing to do, especially in a turbulent time as the late 40s and 50s were. You know, so much had changed after the war. The world's economies were in collapse, and societies were wrecked by a war that took 65 million lives. And he played major roles in the post-war period, as well as his wartime leadership. But despite all of these things that were roiling around him, he managed to come home and be a very regular kind of grandfather, which I now look back in retrospect and say, wow. That's a high level of discipline, be able to turn it on and turn it off like that. What led you to decide to write How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decision? And it's a great title. He was one of the most principled managers I've ever seen. He had really thought through over a very long period of time what worked and what didn't work. And I'm curious what led you to decide that you wanted to write that. Well, first of all, a number of things were happening. The 75th anniversary of VE Day in May and then the end of the entire war, which we've just marked. That was an impetus. Uh, the unveiling of the Eisenhower Memorial was another one. But I guess, Mr. Speaker, at the end of the day, I think Dwight Eisenhower still has something to say to us. And I wanted to pull together his wartime presidential leadership because only very, very large books tend to cover both parts of his career. And I guess the bottom line is I wanted people to take away the fact that Eisenhower the general and Eisenhower the president were one and the same person. It's kind of a remarkable career. There are very few people in our entire history who have had the range he had coming from working at a dairy, then going to West Point, rising to five-star general, then being drafted and becoming president for two terms. When you look at it, that for a long period, he tried to avoid politics. Is it your sense that that was just being coy or that he really did not see himself in the political arena? I think that's a wonderful question because there is a lot of speculation in the scholarly community and coy is a great word. 
I really don't think he was being coy. I really think he spent a lot of agonizing time trying to decide, quote unquote, where his duty lay. And that may sound very strange to civilians, but when he was at West Point, he took a transformational oath to the Constitution of the United States. And as a five-star army general, they never retire. They are always on call to the United States military and to the President of the United States to go into political life and to assume the candidacy for president would be to take himself out of a set of duties he still retained. And that's why I think coyness is not what this was about. Now, it's interesting. Both parties wanted him to be their candidate. But I think that when he finally became a candidate, he did so because he wanted to make sure that the Republican Party assumed an internationalist view of American leadership instead of some of the forces that wanted to draw us back into isolationism. It's amazing how popular he was in that ability to be drafted in New Hampshire and emerge with such formidable support. One of the things I've always been curious about, the whole notion of I like I, do you know where the slogan came from? It's a great campaign slogan, isn't it? It was somebody's idea, I think, in the advertising world. And it's a good thing because it's hard to imagine somebody with a name as long as Eisenhower <laughs> finding a very effective way to campaign because if something short and sweet was required. He already had a nickname, Mike, so it just seemed like a good, catchy thing to advance. And whoever came up with it did him a great service. <laughs> Did Ike go all the way back to his childhood? When did he start being called Ike? Well, that's a great question. He had an older brother named Edgar who had great star power, too. But Edgar was originally known as Big Ike. I think probably when he got to West Point, he started using Ike. It's interesting. My great-grandmother, Ida Stover Eisenhower, simply did not like the nickname. So Mamie once wrote her and said, Ike and I have gone on a road trip. And Ike's mother writes Mamie back and says, now, who is this Ike you're traveling with? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) I have to confess, I'm old enough that my first convention in terms of watching it on TV was Eisenhower in 56. And I actually was in Fort Riley. My dad was an army officer. And so I was actually not far from Ike's home during his run in 56. So I've always had an affection, which... Bob Dole and I have talked about over the years that we we were both so shaped by him. One of the bold decisions he makes is to announce that he will go to Korea. Did you think that came from him or was that staff driven? It was a remarkable moment when he said that. Well, it was a remarkable moment. I remember knowing really quite well one of Adlai Stevenson's speechwriters here in Washington. And he said to me once, how did that idea emerge? Because the minute he said, I will go to Korea, this chap said, we knew in the Stevenson camp that we were done. I really wanted to go there and see it for himself, which is what he did. He made a secret visit between his election and the inauguration because he needed to really get thinking about what to do in Korea. It was a very unpopular war. And I think what sort of sealed it for him was taking a helicopter ride over the front which was probably a fairly risky thing to do, if you think about it. But he realized between the terrain and the position of various forces, he concluded it wasn't a winnable war, 
without escalating things to really a very dangerous level, comparable to World War III. So then he comes back and settles down to try and broker an armistice. As I remember, he actually does imply through the Indians to the Chinese that if they don't find a way to get to an armistice, that he would use tactical nuclear weapons. He was not going to let them just sit there and bleed us for five or ten years. I suspect that his military prestige was such that the Chinese had to take him seriously. Do you know, I think that's an excellent point. We sort of forget the impact of his credibility left from the victory in Europe. He was serious about the choice and that it wasn't just a bluff. Now, whether it was a bluff or not, I don't know. We'll never know. But uh, I think it was definitely that credibility that turned the tide in those negotiations. My guess is that it was not a bluff just because I remember very late in his life, him being interviewed about why we weren't winning in Vietnam. And he said, because we're not taking it seriously. He said, if we have to be there, we have to be there to win. And if we're going to be there to win, we have to take steps that the current team's not prepared to take. So you either get out or you really get in. I'm curious, it must have been a rare moment because when your grandfather goes to Korea, your father is serving there. What is it like to be the son of a five-star general and president of the United States serving in the army and inevitably, of course, I'm assuming, being recognized as Ike's son? Well, I think it wasn't an easy position to be in. And my father, as a matter of fact, was deprived of a normal commencement from West Point. He graduated coincidentally on D-Day. He did live in his father's shadow, but I'm so glad you mentioned this particular conundrum because the new commander-in-chief, Dwight Eisenhower, said to my father, John, well, I'm commander-in-chief now. You should either come home or if you choose to stay with your unit, you have to commit to me that you will never be taken prisoner. And it was known between the two of them, Ike made very clear that he needed to keep a handgun with him. And if he decided he was going to go back under certain circumstances, the president of the United States would expect him to take his own life. So I don't know how long it took my father to make that decision. I suspect no time at all. And he went back with his unit. That's a pretty sobering story, actually. Well, I was going to say, I've heard of tough love, but this is really in a league of its own. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, but, it, but you've outlined something that is some of the basis of Ike's own character, is that he was a clear thinker, and he did not like disorganized thinking. So in other words, he made a very clear choice to my father, just as he made a very clear choice to the Chinese. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My friends, before I begin the expression of those thoughts that I deem appropriate to this moment, would you permit me the privilege of uttering a little private prayer of my own? And I ask that you bow your heads. Almighty God, as we stand here at this moment, my associates in the, my future associates in the executive branch of government join me in beseeching that thou wilt make full and complete our dedication to the service of the people in this throng and their fellow citizens everywhere. Give us, we pray, the power to discern clearly right from wrong and allow all our words and actions to be governed thereby 
and by the laws of this land. Especially we pray that our concern shall be for all the people, regardless of station, race, or calling. May cooperation be permitted and be the mutual aim of those who, under the concepts of our Constitution, hold to differing political faiths, so that all may work for the good of our beloved country and thy glory. Amen. Your grandfather, his inaugural, starts with a prayer. I think he has a significant role in creating the National Prayer Breakfast. And I think he approved of adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't know that he was a religious person in the way some people might think, but it did seem to me that he had a deep sense of God and of reverence for a supreme being. I think that's right, and you're right on all three of those. He played a big role in the prayer breakfast and started with the prayer and also added, in God we trust. I think he was really driven by a higher cause, and that, again, may sound odd to civilian ears, but he understood his place in the larger scheme of things. He committed himself to serving our country and to serving a higher cause. I think he gets this from his family. He came from a very religious family, though you're completely correct. He did not choose a religious denomination until after he was elected in 1952. He did not think that it was useful to be talking about his religion all the time. But I think those things that he brought to our national life by adding the word God in there would be seen as a way to unite the country around a higher mission. I I always thought it was telling that his memoir of the war was crusade in Europe. And I think he saw it as a crusade and he saw the Nazis as sufficiently evil that crusade was the right word. Well, that's right. I think the word crusade was used more commonly in those days. But I think liberating that concentration camp, Ordruf, which was a subcamp of Buchenwald, within the last weeks of the war had a profound effect on his feeling. As a matter of fact, he says in his memoirs that he simply didn't have words. The English language didn't have words that were adequate to describe what he felt when he saw, he used the word bestiality, the savagery that was commonplace among these camps that were being liberated as the war came to an end. I think it's a very dramatic story that tells us a lot about Ike's attitude to the Nazis. He did believe in the idea of bringing them to justice. And then in my research, I discovered very interestingly that he had a documentary film made of the Holocaust, which he insisted be chronicled. And he issued orders to that effect. And he made the German population watch this film. He was going to hold people accountable. While he had enormous respect for George Marshall, in the 52 campaign, He doesn't really defend him. Did you ever look into that? It's an odd moment. It's one of the few places where you see candidate Eisenhower not stepping up to the plate, but deliberately sidestepping something that I suspect knew was wrong. I'm glad you asked that question because people still write about it and are still trying to figure it out. First of all, Eisenhower was a human being, so he did make mistakes. But this was one 
he not only grasped the minute it happened, but he vowed it would never happen again. Eisenhower had to make a transition from being a military commander to entering retail politics. And this was one of the mistakes he made during the campaign that he regretted most deeply. And I even as a kid heard about it long ago. And that is he had previous to going to Wisconsin and being against his wishes in the presence of Senator Joseph McCarthy, he had spoken on at least five occasions about George Marshall's patriotism, about an indispensable role in World War II and his gratitude to Marshall and all of that. But when he got to Wisconsin, his political advisor felt quite strongly that one more recitation of General Marshall would be unnecessary and a mistake. And then what happened was that the speech draft that had this incongruous paragraph about General Marshall was prematurely, without Eisenhower's authority, released to the press. And I can tell you that when he got sandbagged on that, he was humiliated and infuriated, and he didn't want to be on the receiving end of emotions like that when he felt them so strongly. It was a mistake, but here's the mistake. The mistake was it never occurred to him that he'd be sandbagged by his own campaign staff. I use the word humiliated in the book, and some people think that's not strong enough, but in Eisenhower land, where I come from, saying that Dwight Eisenhower was humiliated by his own mistake is pretty strong stuff. He determined he would never make a mistake like that again, and I can tell you it's had an effect because my father made it clear at the Eisenhower Library that they were not to release speech drafts. I don't know if that's ever changed. A speech isn't a speech until Dwight Eisenhower gives it. And had that filtered down to the campaign staff, no one would have ever known that there had been this paragraph that was removed. So you can see the problem, but he ran a very tight ship with his speech writing staff after that incident. And I'm happy to say that it did not affect his relationship with George Marshall. George Marshall came to the White House any number of times during Eisenhower's presidency. And I think it's a real measure of George Marshall, but also the measure of Eisenhower that he could make a mistake and learn from it and salve those wounds. They were an amazing team during the war. Absolutely amazing team. And George is just a phenomenal figure in our history. He did one thing, Mr. Speaker, that I think was so incredibly helpful for the war effort is that he found a team of people he could rely on and trust. And he didn't micromanage. That was really very helpful. And it was a smart thing, too, which means that if something had gone terribly wrong, he could have replaced a Supreme Allied commander. But we never wanted to see an architect of World War II be put in a position where he couldn't protect his own authority. As interesting as Marshall, and this is, I think, a very understudied part of our success, Marshall both had a little book of people that he had picked up all through the 30s that he wanted to make sure he promoted if he was ever in a position to do so. But in addition, Marshall retired an entire generation of senior officers. And people don't realize that the number of people who were well-meaning, but over the hill or didn't quite get it, couldn't move at the pace of modern warfare. And these are personal friends of his, and he's known for 20 and 30 years. And so he's creating the space 
for a much younger guy like Eisenhower to rise because he is wiping out the generation above Eisenhower. And it's, it's one of the great management achievements because it's so hard to do in a big bureaucracy. I think that is such a profound point, and few people really realize how tough that might have been. I think Marshall was also brilliant in convening what was called the Louisiana Maneuvers before the war, and he got his military forces out there. It was the largest military war game in the history of our country, and they took over the state of Louisiana, literally, doing amphibious landings on the coast there, and it went on for some time. And Eisenhower was the chief of staff to the winning side of that set of maneuvers, and that was one of the things that cemented him in Marshall's mind. But really, I so agree with you. I think that George Marshall is really an extraordinary man, and I certainly wish we had more about him in our history books. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I do have to ask you about one thing that is a sign of, I think, his cleverness, but you may know much more about this than I've ever been able to find. When he writes Crusade in Europe, which was a huge bestseller because, of course, everybody who served in Europe wanted a copy, the Congress actually passed a special provision that the income was not taxable. And I'd read somewhere that that was actually the money by which he bought the farm at Gettysburg. Talk about planning. That was a very methodical way to do something that was very helpful to him because, of course, he'd been in the Army when people were paid virtually nothing. So he came out of the war with very, very little income. But I've never known to what degree he had a hand in it and to what degree it just happened. It's interesting you should mention that. You're absolutely correct about getting paid very little in the Army. I came out of World War II and declared that he would not accept any speaking honorariums, that he would not join any corporate board, that he would not do any consulting. So he literally kept the lights on, you might say, by his writings, probably not dissimilar to Winston Churchill. In any case, he once said when he retired from the army, and he and my grandmother got into their car to drive off, he said to her, you do realize that we're driving away in our only asset. They'd only up to that point lived in government housing, so they didn't even at that point have a house. (laughs) Did he ever reflect to you what it was like in the interim where he was president of Columbia? Because in some ways, I always thought that was the most unusual period of his career. Well, it is an unusual part of his career. I heard lots of references to 30 Morningside Drive, which was their residence there. And of course, it's also at Columbia where he takes up oil painting as a way to center his spirit and to let his mind rest. But I think what's so interesting about it is that he came out of the most hierarchical situation one could imagine into a totally horizontal management structure. And I think he enjoyed his time very much. That's always what I heard. But he also missed what he thought he might get more of at Columbia, which was interaction with the students. I think he survived to the extent that he did there with a very integrated approach to the indispensability of everybody's jobs. In my book, I mention a wonderful story where President of Columbia University Eisenhower calls to Lowe Library, the maintenance staff at Columbia University. They came in their overalls and there they were in Lowe Library and the president met all of them. He looked them in the eye and he said, I want you to know that I regard what you do is not only indispensable but part of a community here that is interdependent. Now, that's the way he approached the situation during the war. It's the way he talked to the GIs. And so he made a lot of friends there, actually. 
And then, Mr. Speaker, if I might make one other point about the Columbia period, and I think this is critically important for understanding our national security at the time, he did meet a group of very influential scientists, and he brought them into the White House to report directly to him after Sputnik. And so he utilized the scientific community that had been part of Columbia University. And that was very, very beneficial because he was a great believer in expertise. You'd have to if you were fighting a war. I have to ask you, just because I think it's such a great example of Eisenhower, are you familiar with the story about his going down to Augusta to see if they'll cut down the tree that he hates? (laughs) Oh, golly. Yeah, well, this famous tree, yes, I think Ike had a pretty... An uneven golf game, shall we put it that way. He had apparently a big slice, and there was a tree. I can't remember which hole it was on, but the tree was in the way as far as Ike was concerned. (laughs) So I think he sort of jokingly complained about it once, but this became sort of a mantra. At every board meeting at Augusta, he'd always stand up and with a twinkle in his eye and demand from the chairman of the directors of Augusta that this tree had to be cut down. I must say, what an end of the story, because the tree actually fell down during an ice storm several years ago. And the Augusta community was heartbroken that this famous tree was in pieces. And they made some souvenirs out of the wood. And (laughs) they have a conference table made out of the Eisenhower tree. So there's some fun in that story. There is, you know. I raised it only because Cliss and I were down a few years ago and we saw the display that they'd made out of the tree and all that. Apparently, he actually went down while he was in office and goes to the board meeting. And at the end of the meeting, asked the head of Augusta, would it be in order to move that the tree <laughs> would be cut down? The head of Augusta says, no, that is not in order. And I said, this back down. In terms of the rule of law, And the idea that you're not bigger than the system. I can't think of very many personal stories that captured it better than Ike going through that. That's a wonderful way to look at it. You'll be amused that after the presidency, Granddad had to get a driver's license. Because actually, few people realize this, but after Eisenhower left office, he had no Secret Service detail because former presidents didn't have Secret Service details at that point. So he had no official driver and he had to get a driver's license. So talk about rule of law. Frankly speaking, no members of the family really wanted to ride in the car with him because he had a heavy foot. And he got stopped plenty of times on Confederate Avenue and was always managing his speeding tickets. (laughs) It's tough to go 25 miles an hour on Confederate Avenue in Gettysburg. It's too much of an open road. (laughs) There's a great story about him, to your point, how much the world has changed. Because nowadays, of course, they get Marine One, they get Air Force One, and all sorts of things are done to get the president as they leave office to wherever they're going. But apparently, after Kennedy was sworn in, Ike got in like a three-car convoy. They drive up to the farm, and they're sitting there, and nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, he breaks into a big laugh, gets out, walks up, opens the gate, and waves the group through. Because, of course, the person who'd been at the gate as of noon that day was no longer there. And the world had changed, which is under our system what it's supposed to do. 
exactly what happened. And the thing is, it was my father who drove him up to Gettysburg because Ike didn't yet have his driver's license. Okay. So in terms of the rule of law, he has a very powerful, but in some ways very self-limited approach to civil rights. And in many ways, he's decisive in enforcing the rule of law on segregationist Southerners, but he does so with a kind of caution. What was your sense of his whole approach to dealing with civil rights and the kind of challenges we're still today facing? I think it's an excellent question, and I really appreciate you asking it, because I think this is one of the areas that is most misunderstood about what was in his mind, and if I may add, in his heart. If you read his early speeches, including during the campaign, but most notably in his, I think it's his first State of the Union address, he makes it very clear what his strategy is for civil rights. During the war, he had desegregated some of the units, especially at the end of the war, and he had supported the desegregation of the military. But he had actually a plan, and it's back to that word you used earlier about planning. He really believed that if you were dealing with a long-term issue, as civil rights is, that you have to do what you can do in the time you are allotted, in this case, it'd be four or eight years, and you would be, and this is typical military thinking, you would be far and away most successful if you took care of the things you could control first. And so in that State of the Union address, he announces that his strategy for civil rights is to desegregate everything the federal government controlled. So in 1953, he starts with the District of Columbia Schools and then, of course, the appointment of Earl Warren to the Supreme Court and other federal judgeships where he was very clear that white supremacists need not apply. In any case, it's a misunderstood approach because he did not ascend what people call the bully pulpit. However, he did ascend the bully pulpit around the principles of civil rights. But he didn't call people out personally because of the vote structure. And you'd be way more aware of this than almost any other American. The vote structure was such that he needed the support even of Southerners to pass his 1957 Civil Rights Act. And by the way, those Southerners, some of them segregationists, were actually leaders in the Democrats who held six years in Congress to Eisenhower's eight years of presidency. So it's a more subtle approach, but today the circumstances, I guess, require different approaches. But he did meet his objectives by the end, virtually everything that the federal government controlled, including contracting and a range of other measures had been desegregated by the time Ike left office. His most enduring contribution, of course, were the judgeships that continued on in that fight at the time. You're about to be at the dedication of the Eisenhower Memorial, I had a chance to actually see them in Italy where they were being sculpted. They're huge and they're impressive, and it's going to be quite a memorial. I'm humbled by it. If he were alive, he would be humbled by it. I mean, as he said during the war in his famous Guildhall address, he said, humility must be the portion of any man who earns acclaim in the blood of his followers and the sacrifices of his friends. And I know that's exactly the way he'd feel about this. I have to say, Mr. Speaker, that part of what I really love about this new memorial is that he's with other people. And that's the way he would have wanted it. He always thought in terms of teams. He led teams. But the success had to be shared among all of us. 
I always thought that when his knee was injured and he couldn't play varsity football, but he ended up being the coach for the junior varsity, that that experience of team building stayed with him for his whole career. It was instinctive and deep in him, and he was as good at it as anybody in the 20th century. Well, he certainly believed in teamwork, and if you are going to empower other people, you have to make sure that they know that the leader is standing behind them and defending them. He used to say that a commander or a leader's job is to accept all of the blame and to give all the credit to your subordinates. And he didn't say that in a disappointed or cynical way at all. On the contrary, he believed in it because this is how you motivate a team to help move the cause forward. Well, I want to thank you. I think it's wonderful that you have done this book. And I think that it will be something which people will really learn from, how I led the principles behind Eisenhower's biggest decisions. It's a great thematic for your book. And I think you are uniquely positioned to share with us from a very personal level. And this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm just very honored that you would take some time and chat with us about it. Well, Mr. Speaker, let me just thank you again for this wonderful opportunity and to say what a pleasure it has been to talk to you about this subject. I'm very moved in thinking about your views on this subject. So thank you very much. Thank you to my guest, Susan Eisenhower. You can read more about the dedication of the new Eisenhower Memorial and her new book, How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.